Pastor Curtis called me last week and asked me to come and teach. I said, well, that's really short notice. I don't know, if, uh, I don't know if, what to even teach on. He says, well, you're teaching out of Revelation in your home Bible study. Why don't you come and teach us what you guys are learning there? And so that's, that's kind of what I'm going to do. I'm going to get you guys up to speed. I'm going to cover Revelation chapter 1 through 11, give you some, it's, it's not going to be that bad. Uh, just give you some interpre- interpretive guides and how to understand the book of Revelation and how to interpret it, how to read it. And then I'm going to get uh, the home study caught up in Revelation 11, which is right where we are tonight, uh, covering the 42 months and the two witnesses. I want to begin, since Pastor Curtis is coming out of the Gospel of John, to do some comparisons and some contrasts with the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. We've studied the book of John, and we know that it's marked by sevens. We have seven signs. We have seven I am statements. Revelation is also marked by sevens. We have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, etc. The message is simple. If you reject Yeshua as Messiah and the new creation Sabbath rest that he gives, you will experience a sevenfold curse that is found in Leviticus 26, verses 18 through 28, which Revelation unpacks unfolds for us. In both, Yeshua is the Word, the light of the world, the new creation, the Lamb, the main two books in the New Testament. If you want to defend the deity of Christ, where are you going to end up most of the time? You're going to be in the Gospel of John and the book of Revelation. They both emphasize Yeshua being Yahweh. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. When it comes to the throne in the book of Revelation, the Lamb's on the throne. The Father's on the throne. They're both on the throne. What are we? Who is, who's on the throne? Yeshua is Yahweh. He is the great I Am. They're both one. They're distinct, and yet they're one and the same. Uh, there is some, dis- well, there's some more continuity. John's Gospel unpacks the revelation, or, or um, the last hour, the resurrection of Daniel chapter 12. In the Old Greek Septuagint, it's the hour of the end. It's not the time of the end, it's the hour of the end. And so John, in John chapter 4 and John chapter 5, we have the already and not yet of, of when we're going to worship God in spirit and in truth, when Jerusalem is destroyed, what mountain we're going to worship him on Mount Zion. But we have a coming hour, but now is. So we have an already and not yet of this coming hour. And in John chapter 5, we have the already of the resurrection. If you believe in Christ, you're receiving eternal life. You're being raised. But the resurrection would take place in AD 70, when the dead would would come out of Hades. And you have the same unpacked in uh, John chapter 11, resurrection for the living and the dead. And also in Revelation 20, you have two phases of one resurrection, a spiritual resurrection. There are some differences. In, in John's Gospel, particularly the last half, you have an entire, the, the entire half, last half of John's Gospel deals with the cutting off, cutting off of Messiah. In Daniel 9, 24 through 27, we have Daniel 70 weeks. It climaxes with the last seven. And the last seven is cut in half. The first three and a half years deals with the cutting off of Messiah, his inaugurating of the kingdom, the new covenant kingdom. All right? That's John's emphasis in the Gospel of John. When we get to Revelation, which is his version of the Olivet Discourse, we're concentrating on the last 42 months, that last three and a half year period of that last seven. So between 80, 67, and 70. Is the book of Revelation hard to understand? 
Luther wrote, to my mind, the book of Revelation bears upon it no marks of an apostolic or prophetic character. Everyone may form his own judgment of this book. As for myself, I feel an aversion to it. And to me, this is sufficient reason for, for rejecting it. Wow. Calvin wrote a commentary almost on every book of the Bible, but he didn't have time to cover this one. It must have been pretty difficult. And if you're a futurist, it is difficult. B.B. Warfield, I like his approach. He says, John's apocalypse need not be other than easy. All its symbols are either obvious natural ones or else have their roots planted in the Old Testament poets and prophets and, figures and figurative language of Jesus and his apostles. No one who knows his Bible need despair of reading this book with profit. Above all, he who can understand our Lord's great discourse concerning last things in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24, cannot fail to understand the apocalypse which is founded on that discourse and scarcely advances beyond it. Amen. John's version of the Olivet Discourse. Every commentary will tell you that, that John's version of the Olivet Discourse is the book of Revelation. We see a really good parallel here in the opening chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Both Matthew and John are pulling from the old Greek Septuagint of Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, uh, with the coming of the Son of Man. Not only that, but they're conflating Daniel 7.13 with Zechariah 12.10. So John is very well aware of Matthew's gospel, and he is drawing from it. And they both draw from Daniel and the Old Greek Septuagint. In the Old Greek Septuagint, one like the coming of the Son of Man comes as the Ancient of Days. He doesn't come up to the Ancient of Days. Right after verse 7, how is, how is Yeshua described? He's described as the Ancient of Days. So, if you want to read more on that, I would encourage you to read maybe F.F. Bruce on where he's going. Now, let's just dis discuss this briefly. The coming of the Son of Man, he comes on the clouds spiritually, just as he had come in the Old Testament. Every eye will see him, but in the context, every eye is governed by those who pierced him. That's the every eye. They see him, but this Greek word for see can mean perceive or understand. That's exactly how God had come in the Old Testament when they saw him come through the Roman or the Babylonians, the Assyrians, or whoever, they saw God coming on the clouds, and the nations feared. So this is consistent with Old Testament, the Old Testament comings of the Lord. It's a perceiving, it's an understanding. And the tribes of the land, not the tribes of the earth, this Greek word for earth or land, outside of the book of Revelation, mostly is translated as land. You get in the book of Revelation, all the translators want to translate it earth because they have a bias thinking that the book of Revelation is about the end of world history and global events, and it's just not. Um, I went through the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation. I made parallels. I encourage you to do that. I don't have time to de develop all these, but we have wars and rumors of wars. We have famine. We have earthquakes. We have the passing of heaven and earth. Um, Time of persecution, deception, false prophets, apostasy, great tribulation, the great commission, abomination, desolation, uh, the great city. It's a, it's a judgment upon the city where the Lord was crucified, that is Jerusalem. Uh, the flight to Pella is described in both. Coming of the Son of Man, breaking. Remember, Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. These are covenant curses that are coming upon Jerusalem. 
not upon the globe. And both the Olivet Discourse and the Book of Revelation are drawing from those two chapters in the Old Testament. So that, that gives us a good context as well. That should be number 14. But this is the most important, the same time frame. Jesus says all these things are going to be fulfilled in his generation. They're going to be near. They're going to be at the door in his generation. The book of Revelation is written towards the end of that generation. Therefore, the content will be fulfilled shortly and near. So if we understand, just like Warfield said, if we understand the Olivet Discourse, we'll understand uh, the book of Revelation. So if you don't understand the first sentence or two, of the Olivet Discourse, and you don't understand the first sentence or two of the book of Revelation, don't even bother. You won't understand the rest of it. If you take the disciples' question and, this, and identify the end of the age as the end of world history and not the end of the Old Covenant age, which is the context, you won't understand it. And if you don't understand the Olivet Discourse, you won't understand New Testament prophecy. If you decide you want to harden your heart towards the first sentence of Revelation where he says these things are going to shortly be fulfilled and you want to turn that into 2,000 plus years, then again, you're going to have a difficult time with these two great prophetic passages. I'm going to give you eight interpretive guides. The theme, the time, the outline. We're going to look at audience relevancy, the genre of the book of Revelation. And we're often accused of uh, coming up with something new, I'm going to show you that we haven't. We actually embrace two orthodox views of the book of Revelation. We need to identify the great city, and then we need to read the book of Revelation devotionally with our hearts, not just our minds, and not just uh, for some kind of intellectual apologetics. We, we need to worship the book of, or read the book of Revelation worshipfully. Number one, the theme. Everything we need to know about the book of Revelation is pretty much spelled out in the first chapter. The theme is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice it's not the obscuring of Jesus Christ. It's not, I'm going to give you this huge mystery that you guys are never going to be able to understand. That's not the point of the book of Revelation. It's just the opposite. It's not about nuclear war. It's not about modern Israel. It's not about Russia. It's not about Islam. It's not about a physical rapture or bones receiving some physical glorified flesh someday at the end of world history that's not about the earth burning up. If you think that's what the book of Revelation is about, you're going to miss it. It's the unveiling of Christ and His bride. As the Apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ and through us. That's what's being unpacked here. That's the unfolding. That is what is going to be revealed. And if you don't like that, then you're going to have a hard time with the book of Revelation. Number two, the time frame. Really clear, just like Pastor Curtis had mentioned, there's you know two or three opening time statements, and then at the end, there's time statements as well. And in the middle, chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, it says the prophecy would no longer be delayed. So how do people deal with this? How do they explain it away? Well, I'm going to give you the academic answers, and then I'll give you kind of the prophecy expert uh, answers. Number one, well, it just means certain. All these time statements just mean that Jesus is going to certainly come someday. We can count on it. Really? Is that the point? Let's look at Revelation 22.20. Surely, that's the Greek word for certainly. Certainly, I am coming quickly. All right, different Greek word for quickly. 
Notice that quickly isn't certainly. It would be kind of redundant to interpret this passage as certainly or surely I am coming certainly or certainly. That makes no sense. But yet this is passed off as a scholarly understanding of the time text. How about a second approach? <laughs> These are some of my favorites. Well, it's just symbolically. It's always near. That's what certainly quickly and soon means. It's always near. That's a contradiction. Um, it's eschatological time. It's, it's terms of principle. What is this? Is this a philosophy class? What, what is this, this junk? F.F. Bruce, Anthony Hoykema, Simon Kistemacher. These are philosophers. They're not getting the meaning of these Greek words for eminence from the lexicons and from the Bible dictionaries. They're making stuff up, period. I don't care how many credentials they have. I love R.C. Sproul in his Last Day's Madness. He called it out for what it is. He called these guys, this sounds like neo-orthodoxy, just another version of liberalism, philosophical junk. This is one of my favorite by G.K. Beale. He says, well, it's inauguration. And then he talks about the already not yet. Of course, if they can't explain anything, that's just the terms they use. He says, the focus of quickness and nearness in chapter 1 is primarily on inauguration of the prophetic fulfillment and its ongoing aspect, not on nearness of consummated fulfillment. Indeed, what follows shows the beginning of fulfillment, not the final fulfillment, is focused, is the focus. Really? So he admits that all the coming of Christ passages in the book of Revelation is the second coming. And that that's what's near. Last I checked, the second coming is the consummated fulfillment. It's not the inaugurated fulfillment. If we want to talk about the inaugurated fulfillment, we're going to go to Pentecost, right? Or the earthly ministry of Christ, if you want to go that far back. But that's the inauguration. So this view makes absolutely no sense at all. This is one of my favorites. This is what I was brought up in, Chuck Smith of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I believe the generation of 1948 is the last generation. I believe the Lord could come back for his church at any time before the tribulation starts, which would mean any time before 1981. The rapture is at hand. Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back soon. It is later than you think. It is time to wake up and realize that the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, when these charismatic prophets and these prophetic or these um, prophecy experts say the coming of the Lord is at hand, they interpret it literally. They mean he's literally going to come near in our generation. But when the apostles use that same phrase, it doesn't. My response is simple. I follow Peter. Peter quotes Deuteronomy 32, 5 and 20, and he says his generation was the terminal generation, the last day's generation, the generation that would see the end being near is what Deuteronomy says. So what does Peter say? He says, we are the perverse and crooked generation. He quotes Deuteronomy 32 and Acts 2, 40. And then what does he say in his epistle? The end, just like Deuteronomy says, is near, just like Deuteronomy says, connecting the end-time generation. So who are we supposed to go with, Peter or the prophecy experts? I'll go with Peter, who was actually inspired. Uh, number three, let's look at the outlined. 
Revelation and the already and not yet. Revelation talks about things that are. What are the things that are? John tells us he's in the tribulation with his brethren. So the tribulation's already there. That's the things that are. But then he says, and the things that are about to come. So they're in the tribulation. Our Reformed brethren tell us that John was already in the millennium. So the millennium is something that was present. But the end of the millennium at the soon second coming of Christ is something that was about to take place. So the book of Revelation gives us the already and not yet. And it places the not yet at the soon second coming of Christ. Our partial preterist brethren have to make up two alreadys and not yets. And that is just beyond the actual inspired time frame and outline that John gives us. Audience relevancy. Uh, Pastor Kurz touched on this. It's the seven churches in Asia. Uh, Gentry does bring out a good point here. He says, We even know that the order in which these churches appear follows a known Roman postal route. We know these cities, and they're pretty much in direct order of, of the postal route. So there's no reason to spiritualize these churches as different phases of, of church history. Uh, the genre, symbolic, recapitulation, and know your Old Testament. If you stick with these three things, you'll understand the book of Revelation. Symbolic, uh, ask your premillennial friends and brothers and family members if when they say you need to interpret the book of Revelation literally, ask them, do you believe that uh, the beast coming out of the sea is a physical beast? Do you believe a literal woman is going to ride on this beast? Do you believe that Christ is literally going to be riding on a horse with swords coming out of his mouth? They'll probably have to scratch your head and say, well, well no. All right, so what you're doing is you're addressing their hermeneutic. And you want them to admit, okay, yeah, there is a lot of symbolism here in the book of Revelation. Okay, well, we need them to see this. Just like uh, Schofield, in his Schofield Bible, when he's interpreting the animal sacrifices in the millennial temple of Ezekiel 40 and 48, he says, well, yeah, those probably aren't real animal sacrifices in the millennium because we don't want Jesus smelling animal sacrifices because he's the once and for all sacrifice. He says, that's probably spiritually interpreted as the praises of the church. Well, there's a problem there, because if the sacrifices are to be understood spiritually, what about the temple in which the sacrifices are taken? That's the church as well. Then you have to ask, what about the land that the temple's on? And so forth, which is a heavenly land, we know from Hebrews. Recapitulation, this is important. Simon Kistemacher says, the book of Revelation is laid out with progressive parallelism, and the chapters do not necessarily follow one another sequentially, but rather give the reader different perspectives on the same teaching that finally results in a definite climax, or definitive climax. The parallelism is depicted in three sets of seals, trumpets, bowls, and this suggests that the writer is not presenting a chronological sequence, but rather different aspects of the same events. This is even more profound when we notice the frequent indirect and direct references to the final judgment. And he goes through the book of Revelation. He says, hey, look, we see the consummation throughout the book. We see it in chapter 1, verse 7. We see it in chapter 6. We see it in chapter 7. We see it in chapter 11. We see it in chapters 14 through 16. We see it in chapter 16. We see it in chapter 19. And we see it in chapter 20. But our partial preterist friends would say, oh, yeah, book of Revelation is recapitulatory. And it's all referring to A.D. 70 except one chapter. 
chapter 20, because we got to fall in line with the creeds. We got to kiss up a little bit. We got to keep our jobs. All right, we got to keep those 401ks going, baby. So that's a problem, because once you've isolated Revelation chapter 20 from the rest of the chapters, you're taking, you're taking away from the outline and the way it was structured to fall in line with your creeds and with your traditions. And that's a problem. Know your Old Testament. There's more Old Testament references in the book of Revelation than there are in the book of Hebrews. So if you don't know your Old Testament, it's going to be hard to understand the book of Revelation. I've been studying the Bible for 30 years. I still don't know the Old Testament as much as I want to. But I do know in reading and studying the book of Revelation, when I'm reading things and I'm, I'm faithful in my Bible reading throughout the year, I, oh, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I know he's talking about Zechariah. I know he's talking about Ezekiel. When we read the Old Testament, we find out two things. We find out when God comes on the clouds, it's figurative language. When there's decreation, it's figurative. And, this is really important, when God says His judgment is near and will not be delayed, it's always literally. So the church has flipped things around. It takes apocalyptic language literally, when the Old Testament doesn't, and it takes the time statements, it spiritualizes it away. So it's totally backwards. And we need to let the Bible interpret itself. Analogy of Scripture. Scripture interprets itself. Scripture cannot contradict itself. Here are some charts for you. What I wanted to do is I wanted to present an Old Testament passage that had the coming of the Lord, apocalyptic language, and a time frame statement all together. All right? And you can clearly see that the nearness is literal nearness and that the language is apocalyptic. And so this is our Old Testament standard. If this is the Old Testament standard, why do we come to the New Testament and interpret the Olivet Discourse and the book of Revelation and flip everything on its head? We shouldn't. Even the locusts. You'll understand Revelation 9. What are these locusts and where are they come from? It's come from Joel 1 and 2. The day of the Lord was near. All of this. Um, even Jeremiah 4. Uh, you know, my covenant creation friends... I don't, I'm not hostile to that view. I ha, I'm always open to different views in, in uh, Genesis. But if your main hermeneutic, your main argument is that, well, in Revelation 21 and 22, he's drawing from Revelation, or uh, he's drawing from Genesis 1 and 2. If that's your only argument, that's not going to do you real well in Jeremiah 4, because when God judges Jerusalem in Jeremiah chapter 4. He uses the language, the creation language of Genesis 1 and 2 to create a judgment. So, again, this language is apocalyptic. He even draws from Genesis to demonstrate a judgment, a national judgment, not a global judgment. Let me back up. Ezekiel 7 and 12, God said that his judgment was near, he said it would not delay. The false prophets were the ones that were saying, no, his judgment isn't near. It, it, it is going to be delayed. It's going to be for a time after us, our descendants, later. So it's the false prophets that twist God's nearness. And that should, I would hope, bring some concerns for our future friends who want to twist these time statements. Embracing the orthodox views of the church. Let me give you some... Uh, uh, an argument, and then I'll give you some charts to, so you can understand where I'm coming from. Major premise, A. The coming of Christ throughout the book of Revelation is the one second coming event. 
B, the, the judgment and rewarding vindication of the martyrs and the decreation of Revelation 20, the millennium, has been recapitulated for us in chapters 1 through 19 and chapters 21 and 22. This is the Westminster Confession of Faith position. The coming of Christ throughout the book of Revelation is the second coming. Period. All right? Minor premise. But, this is also an orthodox view in the church, a reformed view. A, but the coming of Christ in Revelation was fulfilled spiritually and soon in AD 70. B, and the judgment, vindication of the martyrs, and the decreation depicted in Revelation 1 through 19 and 21 and 22 was also fulfilled in A.D. 70. That's partial preterism. What do you do when you combine those orthodox views of the church? You get full preterism. Conclusion. Therefore, the one second coming event in Revelation was fulfilled spiritually and soon in A.D. 70 to close the old covenant age, not to end world history. B. Since the judgment vindication of the martyrs and decreation of Revelation 20 recapitulates the judgment and the decreation elsewhere in Revelation, then the millennium ended in AD 70. Very straightforward. If you like charts, you like comparing scripture, this is how you learn. I do too. Look at it this way. Again, Revelation 20 is recapitulated elsewhere in the book of Revelation. In Revelation 6 and 12, you have past persecution. You have more persecution to come. You have the vindication of the martyrs theme. You have that in Revelation 20. In chapter 6 and 12, you also have in a little while, Satan only has a little while. In Revelation 20, you have the same Greek phrase, chronon uh, mikron. Satan only has a little while before the millennium ends. Or actually, it's after the millennium ends, he has a little while. Every mountain and island were removed from their places. We have decreation in Revelation chapter 6, 16, 21, and 22. We have decreation to end the millennium as well. They're the same, they're the same judgment except described differently. That's what recapitulation is. The first section, okay, Christ, his saints are described one way. The enemies are described one way. And a couple other chapters, you have the same characters except described differently. And it's just these little circles, and they go into Revelation 20, and Revelation 20 is not anything different it's not a different judgment of the dead than's already laid out, especially in Revelation 11. And then you have more parallels. What about this end-time war, Gog and Magog? Well, John uses the definite article, the, to describe the end-time war in Revelation 16, 19, and Revelation 20. And he also draws upon Ezekiel 38 and 39 in both. This is clearly the same end-time war. These aren't two different wars. And then you have the devil thrown in the fire, well, in the other chapters, you have the other enemies of the church thrown in the fire, the, the beast, the harlot, and the false prophet. That's not a different judgment. Identifying the great city, you might even write a, want to write a commentary called, Who is this Babylon? Right? We have a good friend, Don Preston, who, do, who has done that. And what he's saying there is if you understand and you identify who Babylon or this great city is, you'll understand the meaning of the book of Revelation because uh, if it's Jerusalem... When Jerusalem is judged is when the judgment of the dead takes place. That's the consummation. It's a tale of two cities. It's a tale of two wives. Therefore, it's a tale of two covenants. When the first covenant, or when the harlot bride is judged, and she is stoned, and she is burned, 
just like the wife of a priest would be under the Old Covenant. She has been, faith, she's been unfaithful to Yahweh, therefore Jerusalem is to be stoned and burned, and she is. And at the same time she's stoned and burned, God is, consummates his marriage, his betrothal with the church, and she embraces him and enjoys the wedding feast. So the Old Covenant Jerusalem is being feasted upon by the vultures while the New Covenant bride is enjoying the wedding feast with her groom on Mount Zion, according to Isaiah 25, 6-9. Read not just for your mind, but for your heart. I'm constantly brought back to the exhortation in Ephesus, of Christ to Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested. We're Bereans, right? We test those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Lord, how's that possible? I'm constantly in your word. I'm, I'm reading our, our daily devotions, going through the word. I'm, I'm doing the work of an apologist. I'm refuting error. I don't put up with error. But Mike, are you reading? See, this is me in the morning. I'll read. I, I immediately begin. Instead of reading, okay, after I read, how am I going to take this truth, get on my knees, thank God for what He has shown me, and praise Him out of what I've seen, I'm, I begin, temptations are thinking, oh, okay, I just read this, I know this, I know it correlates to this, I can refute this person over here, I can answer this guy's question over here, this is going to be great for a message over here, or an article over here. I'm going to get on Facebook, I'm going to teach people. No, Mike, I don't want you to teach anybody right now. I don't want you to do a work of an apologist right now. I want you to get on your knees and worship me with the knowledge you've just learned. Let's start there before we do all these other things with the knowledge of the Word that you have. Does that make sense? Because if you do that for a period of time and you neglect that supping and that dining with Christ, which is the fulfillment of everything we're studying, then you've missed out. And over a period of time, you will forsake your first love. And you have to go back. And you have to remember and you have to do the things that you did before. I've got to fly here a little bit. The, the message of the churches, you have the soon coming of Christ in the beginning chapters. You have the soon coming of Christ at the end. You have promises of rewarding if they overcome, if they're faithful. They would receive things like the tree of life, a crown of life. They wouldn't be hurt by the second death. They would be given the hidden manna. They would be reigning with Christ. All of the, they'd be seated on a throne. All the promises at the beginning of the chapters are realized in the new creation at the end. All right? They're different pictures of describing eternal life. That's all they are. The tree of life is one picture. A crown of life is eternal life. That's another picture. Ruling and reigning with Christ through preaching the gospel in the new covenant age, another, just different pictures of the same thing. Chapter 5. What's with this seven-sealed scroll? Well, there's only two views that make sense. One, it's a divorce certificate, which I think Gentry and some others take, which later on in the book of Revelation might make sense. Or in the ancient world, if you received a seven-sealed scroll, it was a will or testament. Someone died. You were going to open up that seven-sealed scroll and find out if you were inherited 
if you inherited something or if you were disinherited. All right? So I think this is what it is. It's, you know, the, the Old Covenant Jews were disinherited and the New Covenant Church was going to inherit all the promises of the Old Testament, of the Law and the Prophets. Chapter 6, verses 2 through 7. We have the opening scene here, or we have four writers. And this period depicts, in Matthew 24, the birth pains. All right, the covenant wrath signs of Deuteronomy. War, famine, pestilence. These were general signs that did not mark the near end. Verse 9 and 10, we see imprecatory prayers of the saints under the altar. Lord, how long until you avenge? Now, do you know what an imprecatory prayer is? You read it in the Psalms. David says, break their teeth, God. Destroy them. Crush them. Well, under the new covenant, apparently, the martyrs are, are doing that, and God's not saying, oh, oh, don't pray that way. No, these are imprecatory prayers. They want justice. They want God to be glorified in crushing His enemies, which are their enemies. And they're promised, in a very little while, I will come and vindicate you. In a very little while, I will judge those who put you to death. After the number of your fellow brethren are martyred, I will come and I will come quickly in a very little while to avenge you. We have decreation in verses 15 and 16, which is taken from Isaiah 2 and 3. They're going to hide in the mountains and call, the, call for the rocks to fall upon them. If, if the second coming involves the earth burning in an instant, this doesn't make any sense. Not only that, but Jesus in Luke 23.30 applies this very passage, this decreation passage, to the fall of Jerusalem. Any commentary will tell you that. Because he's on his way to the cross and they, he sees these women mourning and weeping for him. He says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. For there's a time coming. And he quotes Isaiah 2 and 3. It's that in that day, um, in the last days of his coming. It's actually his second coming. And we have all these commentaries uh, saying it was AD 70. Well, does John use the same Old Testament passage in a different way that Jesus did? No. It's AD 70. Revelation 7. Now we're introduced to the second Exodus motif. Remember, under the first Exodus, you have the Hebrews and a great multitude of Gentiles and slaves and so forth coming out of a great tribulation. In Revelation 7, you have the 144,000 and another great multitude coming out of a tribulation. They washed their garments in the first Exodus before they could approach the presence of God. In Revelation 7, they washed their garments. They are saved and sprinkled by blood under the first Exodus before they can approach God. And here they are saved and sprinkled by blood as well. God is a husband in Exodus 19 through 24, and he provides food, water, and protection and comfort throughout the 40 years of wandering. And here God is described as a husband, graciously providing food, water, protection, and comfort. And remember, in the book of Revelation, Old Covenant Jerusalem is called Egypt. They are coming out of Old Covenant Egypt, that slavery of the Old Covenant, which is called the administration of death. And their persecutors are their own brethren. That's why Old Covenant Jerusalem is Egypt. Revelation 8 through 11, we get into the trumpets. Let's get into some Trumpology, and I'm not talking about pa uh, President Trump. When you, when you study the trumpet in the Old Testament, I'll just give you some guidelines here. The first 
first thing we see is there was a trumpet that was blown for the gathering of Israel at Mount Sinai. The, co the common Jew could only go so far at the base of the mountain. The 70 elders could go in the middle, up to the middle of the mountain. The, the mountain is a temple. That's the first temple structure, all right? So you have the outer courts. The people can, can go at the base. The elders, up to the middle. They saw God. They ate with God. But only Moses could go to the very top of the mountain, right? In the glory cloud. And talk face to face with God. So do you see the temple, temple theology here? Base, the courtyard. Your priest could go in the holy place, the midsection, but only the high priest could go at the top. Moses is from the Levites. His father and mother were Levites. He's really the second high priest. Adam would be the first. Uh, he's the second. And so the trumpet is blown. But under the New Covenant, in A.D. 70, a trumpet is blown, and the New Covenant people of God are gathered where? Especially in Isaiah. We're gathered at, on the top of Mount Zion in the glory cloud, in his presence. Type, anti-type. Sinai gathering at Mount Zion. All uh, the trumpets were blown at the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of, Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Ingathering. The book of Revelation is fulfilling those last three feasts. Right? The first three and a half years of, 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 the, of Daniel's last seven, we have the first four feasts being fulfilled in Christ's first coming. Book of Revelation is talking about those last three feasts at the blowing of the trumpets. When you, when you hear a, a, temp, uh, a trumpet being blown in the Old Testament, I think of Jericho. They walked around seven times, they blew their trumpets seven times, and that city, that ungodly city, came down. Well, in the book of Revelation, who is Jericho? It's Old Covenant Jerusalem. She's coming down at the blowing of the trumpet. Chapter 8 uh, we have this uh, bowl of incense being mixed with prayers. What's going on here? An angel's taking fire from the altar. He's connecting it with the bowl of incense, which are the imprecatory prayers of the saints. He's combining them, and he throws it on the land. What's going on here? Where, where's this imagery coming from? The Old Testament, Jericho. All right. The Levites were to have a perpetual fire burning because God brought the fire down from heaven and established the burnt offering and the Old Covenant sacrificial system. When they were to conquer a city in the land, they were, to, they were to conquer the city and they would take all the spoil from the city. They would put it in the middle of the city and they would use it as kindle. They would take the fire from the altar of the temple, and only that fire, no other fire, that fire, put the spoil on fire, and it would ignite the whole city. And God said, that city is a sweet aroma to me. That city is a sacrifice. What's the message in Revelation? If you reject the Son's atonement, that sacrifice, you will end up being the sacrifice. Either way, God's going to win. I'm smelling the sweet aroma and sacrifices of, and praises of my people, but if you reject me, Old Covenant Jerusalem, you will become a sacrifice and I will be glorified in that as well. That's what's going on there. What's going on with this mountain in Revelation 8? It's uprooted and it's thrown in the sea. Is that a literal mountain? What did Jesus tell the disciples how to pray in Matthew 21? First, he curses the fig tree, which he says is Israel. You're not going to bear fruit. Whoop, the, the tree just withers. The disciples are like, wow, what's going on here? He says, I'm going to teach you how to pray. 
when you say, if you have enough faith, you will say to that mountain, be uprooted and thrown in the sea. That's what we see here. It's the, it's the imprecatory prayers of the saints under the altar in Revelation 6, praying for vengeance, and now it's happening. Old Covenant Israel is a mountain that's thrown into the sea. In the Old Testament, Babylon was an enslaving and, and wicked mountain. All right? But now Old Covenant Israel takes on the characteristics of her enemies. So now Old Covenant Jerusalem is an enslaving mountain. She was once holy, but now she's not. She's actually persecuting the godly remnant. So that mountain is what's picked up and thrown in the sea in AD 70. If you compare Scripture with Scripture, this, is, this really isn't that difficult. Chapter 9. What's going on with these locusts? I think Foy Wallace nails this the best. Here again, John joins Joel in the imagery of war in the respective visions of the locusts. Describing the Chaldean armies as swarms of locusts in their march on Jerusalem in B.C. 584, Joel said, The appearance of them is as appearances of horses, and as the tops of the mountains shall they leap, as a strong people set in battle array. The locust vision of Joel and John are parallel. The former describes the Old Testament war of Nebuchadnezzar on the Jews, the latter the Neronian war of A.D. 70 on Judea. Remember Matthew 12? This, this introduces the, the demonic in the book of Revelation. I know there's some preterists out there that really have a hard time with Satan, demons, angels. I have no idea why. There are some futurists that do as well. Okay, It's, it's kind of in both camps. What did Jesus say in Matthew 12? Um, he said, after he drove out a demon from a man, he uses this as an illustration to teach them about their generation, their wicked and corrupt generation. He says, basically, your generation is the worst. Well, why, Jesus? Because it's like if I drive out a demon from a man and he, does it and he cleans his house and there's nothing there, that is, he didn't fill his house with faith. He didn't fill his house with good works, fruits of the Spirit. Because he didn't fill it with faith after the demon was cast out, that demon goes and he gets seven more demons, and the latter state of the man is worse than the beginning. That's like the house or body of Israel. If you're not listening to my preaching, if you're not responding to the grace I'm giving you, you're going to be like this man who latter end is worse. And we see the abyss opening up in Revelation 9, and we see demonically led zealots, the demonically led Romans coming against the city, devouring each other. The zealots were just crazy guys. I mean, they dressed up like women. They went into people's houses like women. They raped the family members. They killed them. They stole from them. And they drank blood. If that's not jacked up, if that's not demonic, I don't know what is. God gave these people over to demonic... De demonic... Uh, yeah, I mean, just gave them over completely. In Revelation chapter 10, we're introduced to the mystery. And we have, did you guys see Aquaman? How many of you guys saw Aquaman? What? Just one? <laughs> Jeff, I'm disappointed. Aquaman, there's this line in Aquaman. He says, that, that pretty redhead tells, her, tells him, oh, you know, I know you don't feel like a king, but you know what? You're, you're not just a king because you can rule the sea. You're greater than a king. A real king cannot just rule his realm, but he conquers other kingdoms and brings them together. So Aquaman is 
He's ruling the kingdom of the sea, but he's also going to unite the kingdom of land and sea together. What Cheap imitation of Christ here in Revelation chapter 10. Christ is pictured as having one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. He's pretty big here, all right? So I don't think it's a, a literal representation of his body. So we've got a 900-foot Jesus. He's got one foot in the sea. He's got one foot on the land. And then right after that, we're, we're told about this mystery that would no longer be delayed at the blowing of the seventh trumpet. He's uniting the sea. What are, what's the sea here? Gentiles. And the land is the Jews. He's uniting the two kingdoms together. Only Christ can do that. Sorry, Aquaman. The mystery was in the Old Testament. Um, we also are introduced to this bittersweet scroll. Where is this? Do we see this anywhere else in the Old Testament? Ezekiel 2 and 3. Ezekiel was told the same thing. A judgment coming upon Jerusalem. I want you to take this scroll and eat it. It's going to be bitter and sweet. Well, John's told to do the same thing. Why is it bitter? Why is it sweet? It's bitter because I'm thinking of Romans chapter 9. Paul is weeping over Israel, his countrymen. He says, I wish I was cursed for them. It's a sad thing to watch God's people become accursed. But it's also sad because there was more suffering to come, right? The book of Revelation talks about. So it's bitter in that way. It's sweet. Why? Because it's the victory of the church over her enemies. It's God dwelling in His people. So it's sweet in that respect. And now we get to Re Revelation chapter 11. The measuring of the temple. And this is, I just, I love this. Uh, Jay Adams writes, and he was the only one that nailed this. So, so please pay attention. And I'm going to develop what, what he, he puts in seed form. It is possible that, okay, so let me back up. When you measure something in Scripture in the Old Testament, you're either measuring it for judgment, it's not up to snuff, or you're measuring something because it's to be protected by God, it's God's, or He's going to, he's going to build something up. The Old Testament background to this is Ezekiel 40-48. to He's already appealed to Ezekiel in chapter 10. He's, he's appealing to Ezekiel again. And so in Ezekiel 40 and 43, they're called to measure this temple, and it's the New Covenant temple. We know that because Paul says that in 2 Corinthians 6.16. So he's measuring, he's protecting his people. But it's not just this generic temple. It's one part of the temple that he's to measure. It's the Greek word naos. J. Adams writes, It is possible that verses 1 and 2 may be correctly interpreted as predicting that everything pertaining to the physical temple is to be destroyed except the naos. The word used here for temple, which refers more exactly to the Holy of Holies, where the Shekinah glory of God dwells. And I, I was like, okay, I want to check this out. Now, sometimes this word can refer to the whole temple, but sometimes it's referring just to the most holy place. So I was like, well, how is this used in the book of Revelation? Revelation 3.12, The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple, Greek naos, of my God, never again will they leave it. Alright, it's coming down. Now, how is this temple, how is this most holy place described later in Revelation? It's a perfect cube. It's the most holy place, but I'll get there in a minute. Revelation chapter 7. The 144,000 come out of the great tribulation. And where are they gathered? They're gathered in the temple. The naos, the most holy place. This is after the resurrection, the harvest of um, Revelation 14. 14 is a great commentary on chapter 7. So, 
the 144,000 are sealed, right? So this is a picture. In between the sixth seal and the seventh seal, we have this interlude of protection. God is protecting these 144,000. In between the blowing of the sixth trumpet and the seventh trumpet, there's an interlude. Same thing, same structure. So the measuring here is measuring of protecting God's people, but God's people here are described as His most holy place. This is the part I'm measuring. This is the part I'm protecting. This is the part that's the apple of my eye. Everything that I haven't measured, the, the holy place, the courtyard, the land, it's all being given over to the Gentiles, the Edomites and the Romans to be destroyed. Revelation 11, even within this chapter, we find that this Greek word for naos is the most holy place. Why? Because it's where the ark is seen. The ark isn't anywhere except in the most holy place. Consistently, this Greek word is used for the most holy place. Revelation 21, we have the same motifs. We have the measuring again, which is this perfect cubed city. That's God's most holy place. That is now the temple, so to speak. And the Lamb and God dwell in that most holy place, the new Jerusalem, which is us. He dwells in us. So the measuring is, is us, the most holy place, and he's protecting his people. He's looking after them. He's giving them eternal life. Hebrews 9, I have no idea why they didn't go here, but I love this. Um, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown correctly observes in Hebrews 9, they say, the Old Testament economy is represented by the holy place. The New Testament economy, or the new covenant people of God, by the holy of holies. And so he says that this holy place is symbolic of the present age. What was the present age? It was the old covenant age. So you had the old, you had the holy place which represented the old covenant system, and you have the most holy place which represents the new covenant age. And when the First is taken away, the holy place, the only thing that stands that's left is the most holy place. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation. The only thing that's left is God's most holy place, New Jerusalem, where he dwells, dwells within us. Revelation 11, now this is where we would be tonight in our Bible study, so I'll, I'll try and jam through here. We're almost done. We have... Since Revelation is John's version of the Olivet Discourse, we need go no further than the Olivet Discourse to understand this passage. Revelation 11, chapter or verse two. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that for leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, as the Gentiles, the Edomites, and the Romans, and they will trample the holy city, that is Jerusalem, for forty-two months, three and a half years. Again, this is Daniel 9, 26 and 27. It's the war that was coming against my holy people and their city. This is the last half of that broken seven. That's the three and a half years. This is the war. All right? Well, what does Luke 21, 24 say? They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem, underfoot by the Gentiles, will be trampled until the times of the Gentiles. Well, Revelation 11.2 tells us what the times of the Gentiles are. It's the three-and-a-half-year period. It's the climax of the four Gentile kingdoms ruling over the Old Covenant system, and it's climaxing in this last three-and-a-half-year period. This is the last time the Gentiles are going to have any power over God's kingdom. 
because the kingdom is going to be transformed to its spiritual nature, and now no earthly kingdom can rule over God's people because we are one elect holy nation, a spiritual nation, a spiritual temple that can't be trodden down. Who are these two witnesses? Oh, so, much, so many debates over this, and I could, get, I could do a whole sermon on this alone. But it's clear that these are not two specific individuals. The fact that John is drawing upon uh, four different individuals here shows us that these two people, these two witnesses, are, are to be interpreted symbolically. Clearly, we have references to Moses and Elijah with the coming down of fire. We see that with Moses. God, at his word, brings fire down to consume the 3,000 and those who rebelled against his authority. In Kings, with Elijah, Elijah calls down fire upon the false prophets and the false worship. Um, so we have the church functioning as the fulfillment of the Law and the Prophets. The Law and the Prophets foretold Christ and his relationship to his body. The Great Commission is going out. They're preaching the gospel. And if they don't listen, if Old Covenant, of Old Covenant Jerusalem doesn't listen to their message, they will be burned up. And they did. But we also have another interesting uh, description of these two witnesses that you cannot mistake. They are Joshua and they're Zerubbabel, the high priest and the governor of Zechariah 3 and 4. You can't mistake this. So you have, you have two Old Testament figures that are describing the judgment that's going to take place in this three and a half years. But you have two Old Testament figures that represent restoration. And you have Christ who unites the king, kingly office and the high priest's office. He unites those two in Christ. But if when we trust in Christ, now we're united to Him, and we're what? We're a royal priesthood. We rule with Him kingly, but we're a priesthood as well. So, Joshua and Zerubbabel describe the restoration. They're coming back in the land and what they're doing. They're, they're laying the foundation of the new temple. And so that's what the church was doing during the Great Commission. They were saying, hey, if you don't listen to us, you don't listen to the Law and the Prophets, you don't listen to Moses and Elijah, you don't, you don't realize that Christ is a fulfillment of that and that we're His new temple, you're going to be burned up. And they're like Zerubbabel and Joshua. If you don't listen to us, you're going to miss out on the restoration, the building up of God's new covenant people of God, His temple. That's what the lampstand and the two olive trees represent. If you read Zechariah 3 and 4, you'll clearly see the reference. Um, when they finish their testimony, of course, that's the Great Commission, uh, Romans 10, 18, the gospel was, had already been preached in all the world. They are killed and, and they lay in the streets. They lay in Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. Of course, this is Old Covenant Jerusalem. And this is depicting the persecution of Rome and, its persecu and, it, and the Jewish persecution. They thought that they had stamped out Christianity. Nero was burning Christians left and right and having parties and just burning Christians. And Jews were likewise persecuting Christians. Um, it says the nations rejoiced because the two witnesses tormented them. How did the church torment Rome and the Jews? They tormented Rome because Rome said, we have one king, Caesar. But these Christians wouldn't bow the knee to Rome. They didn't partake in Caesar or emperor worship, did they? They were a thorn and they tormented Rome. 
But the message of the gospel also tormented the Jews. What was the church's message? You have to believe in Yeshua as Yahweh. If you don't, you're going to die in your sins. What? Blasphemy. You're tormenting us. We're going to gnash our teeth at this message. No way. That and what's with this spiritual fulfillment stuff you Christians keep teaching? It's a physical kingdom. You guys are heretics. And what's this message about Gentile inclusion? You obviously don't know the Old Testament Scriptures. We're the people of God. When Messiah comes, He's going to destroy the Gentiles and He's going to elevate us in the kingdom. So this message tormented the Jews as well. They lay dead for three and a half days. Jesus was in the tomb roughly three and a half days, three days. This is a a corporate uh, recapitulation of the dying and rising with Christ. What did Paul say? He said, fill up what was lacking in the sufferings of Christ. What did he say in Romans 6? He says that they, were, they had been united in Christ's death and his resurrection into newness of life. So what is going on with the, after they're dead? It looked like the church had been snuffed out. They had been killing all these Christians. Um, and, and it looked like they were dead. They were rejoicing. We got rid of these Christians. But then they, they stand up. God gives them life. So the church will be victorious over their enemies. What does it mean to be caught up? This is an apocalyptic, metaphoric, hyperbolic description of the rapture of 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 16 and 17. All right. Now, David Shelton, right, he came really close. Now, remember, he became a full preterist, and I, I remember talking to him about his commentary on Revelation, but he comes close here. He says, The story of the two witnesses is therefore the story of the witnessing church, which has received the divine command to come up here and has ascended with Christ into the cloud of heaven. Now he quotes Ephesians 1, 20-22. We're seated in heavenly places. Uh, and Hebrews 12, 22-24. We're a cloud of witnesses. Okay. But, he, <laughs> but this is at the sounding of the seventh trumpet. This is the fulfillment of the mystery of God. This is the catching up of God's people into the clouds and into the air. This is the rapture. And I don't take 1 Thessalonians 4 any more literally than I take this because I know Scripture interprets itself. Interesting that N.T. Wright, when we go to the rapture passage of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, no, this is apocalyptic language. This isn't to be taken literally. You're scratching yourself, your head just going, how is this guy not a full preterist? How does he not see if this is apocalyptic language uh, and the gathering of the elect in Matthew 24 is not physical language uh, or physically to, to be interpreted, then you know, the rapture, quote-unquote, and the resurrection was a spiritual event. <clears throat> so let's wrap this up. Conclusions and applications. Thank God that this book is not so mysterious. It's not veiled. It's unveiled for you to understand. And if you approach it with the right heart and the right mindset and let Scripture interpret Scripture, you'll understand it. But in your understanding of it, make sure you live it out and live it out humbly and devotionally in your worship. Don't just worship God in truth. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. And when you do, and when you do share preterism with people from this mindset in your studies, you'll do it a lot more humbly than, than you would otherwise. 
the gospel continues to march on victoriously. All right? We have the Great Commission. Our Great Commission is Revelation 22, verse 17. We bring healing to the nations as they flood into the New Jerusalem, that perfect cube, that most holy place, presence of God. God has restored us to his most holy place presence, so let's live that way. Let's realize we're beholding God's face. We have eternal life and walk in such a manner that reflects his holiness, his justice, and his graciousness. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Lord, this book has been so abused. And I know uh, it must grieve you. I know you're sovereign, but I, I know it must grieve you. It grieves me. And I just pray that people will see you and they will understand who they are in you. In Jesus' name, amen. I had a question. Um, yeah, bro. Years or three and a half days that they lay dead. Do you, do you correlate that with the, tribul the second half of tribulation and the three and a half years there, or no? It's possible, you know, because sometimes in Scripture days are years, right? right. Uh, forty days of spying out the lamb turn into forty years. Uh, forty days talking to the uh, the disciples, restoring them, and then a, a forty-year transition period. So it's possible, you know, that there's a play there. Um, I think the play there probably is on uniting these two witnesses are united to Christ he is the fulfillment of of the king kingly role and the priestly role in our union with him we also join in those two offices so his death was roughly three days three and a half days so I think that's kind of a recapitulation of the church dying and rising in him um, that's kind of my take on it anyone else Well, you know, it's a test of my faith because normally I'm a perfectionist and I would have just said no when he called because, hey, man, I need like three months, you know. And I don't, I don't do this on a regular basis. I don't preach. I, you know, I don't, I don't uh, put sermons together. Maybe a conference every once in a while will have six months to prepare for something. But, um, but because we were already going through the book of Revelation, I wanted to extend our home Bible study to you and to our Internet audience. And... Uh, you can always look us up on, on my Facebook if you want to join every Sunday night. We're, we'll be picking up uh, the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12, Lord willing, next week. Anyone else got any questions? Yes, sir. I just can't verbalize it. There's a question banging around <laughs> there, and I just can't get it out. So. It's all right. It does. The question I ask about preterism, you know, is... How did this become so hidden? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's just the opposite. Isn't that weird? It's the unveiling. He wants you to know what this is about. Here it is. We don't study the Old Testament. Number one, we don't study the Old Testament. So when you read something in Revelation, these are Jews. Or they're proselyte Gentiles who knew the Old Testament. They understood. Oh, yeah, he's talking about this and this and that. And they understood, they understood the genre, that this is apocalyptic language, just like Ezekiel was. They didn't interpret Ezekiel literally. So um, we just lost, we, we don't implement hermeneutics. 
We got all these guys in seminary and Bible college that are taking classes on hermeneutics. They get out of school. They're too darn lazy to actually do what they were taught. And they buy their big libraries with their commentaries, right, that are from their school, and they go to them. And they act like they did hermeneutics. We're just not diligent. We're, we're not studying the Old Testament Scriptures. We're not letting Scripture interpret itself. I mean, bottom line. Thousands of years, right? Yes, it so, does. We blame the early church. We want a hope that can be seen. Paul says, Our hope is not on things which can be seen, it's on things which cannot be seen. He said, Set your mind on things above. Remember, we talked about that earlier. Not on the things of the land. This Zionism in premillennialism is just a resurrection of Judaism. The errors that Christ confronted. It's just, and they call us the heretics, which is just. Mind-boggling. <laughs> it is comforting to have the theology of Christ uh, and the apostles, the inspired apostles. I'll go with them over Chuck Smith or Hal Lindsey any day. Any day. Well, I think like you said earlier, if they would just understand the very first verse yeah. in Revelation, yep. you know, that's where they get off track. It's, he showed his servants which must soon take place. And somehow that soon got turned into 2,000 years later, and so we're totally off. It's prophetic time. It's inauguration. You don't see that? It means certainly. I mean, even though the dictionaries don't mean that, if they keep saying it enough, I don't want to get in trouble with politics, but it's like the liberal, the media. I mean, if they tell you that Trump is a racist and that Republicans are racist long enough, maybe they'll make some person believe that. So, you know, these, these guys that have all these degrees that tell you soon, quickly, near means really nothing. It's, it's I guess if they think, that if because they're somebody, they're supposed to be somebody, you're just supposed to nod your head and say, okay. You're not supposed to be a Berean and go to the dictionary and see what the word means. I, so it's, it's kind of sad. <laughs> Public schools. You're not taught to think. Yeah, they're not taught to think. Yeah, and, and even in Bible college, when they're taught hermeneutics and how to preach expositorily, very few do that. And when they do do it, they only do it in their cookie-cutter theological mo model or the seminary that they came from. And, you know, it takes faith to see this, say, God, this is the truth. I'm going to let the chips fall where they may. But this is your word, and this is what I believe. And if it means that they're going to be fired from a seminary or a Bible college or, or lose their pastorate, hey, God will take care of you. God will raise you up. You honor his word, he will honor you. I think part of the problem, Mike, with hermeneutics is it's the clergy-laity division, and they just don't think people are smart enough or need to even know that stuff. So they don't even bother trying to teach it. Right. It's Roman Catholicism played out in a different way. We didn't learn the, 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 uh, the lesson of the Reformation. You know, the creeds themselves say they, these creeds may be wrong. They could be in error just like they were before when we had to go through the Reformation. But the Reformed Church, man, I can't argue with the Reformed Baptists without the, the London 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith being thrown in there. And this is what we believe. And this is, Gentry says that the creeds are infallibly certain. He believes that the Reformed Church has... That creed has infallibly, certainly interpreted Scripture. And that's just Roman Catholicism played out all over again. That's why 
Gentry, when he gets to Revelation chapter 20, it's funny because Gentry goes to Revelation 20 and he, he criticizes the premillennials. He says, you guys isolate this thousand years reign. You, you don't connect it to the rest of Revelation. You don't connect it to anything else in the New Testament or the Old Testament. How can you do that? But yet Gentry does the same thing. He says, this one chapter is describing the end of world history, but all the other chapters aren't. It's a different judgment of the dead. It's a different... De- I mean, hermeneutics, I mean, he's going against his own hermeneutics, and he's just following the traditions of men. Yes, sir? Um, 2,000 years ago, what form did the Bible exist in, and who had it? Did they have a name for it? Um, that's a question, really, I just thought of. can't believe it. Wow, what would be some... Uh... Well, well, the canon of Scripture, and of course Luther, I quoted, Luther didn't even think James and uh, the book of Revelation should even be in the canon. So you have a, a period of, what, 300 years before New Testament canon is developed? Um, it, it took a while, but I, I definitely reject the notion that, you know, because the Catholic Church put it together, we have to listen to everything that the Catholic Church because we don't need to do that. You just need to be a Christian, and you can read these documents, and you can pretty much tell if they're authentic or if they're a fraud, like the Gnostic Gospels. I, I think it's, uh, it's God still led his people, and he even led some unbelievers just to see some common sense things. Yeah, this, this matches up with Scripture. It's inspired. But, yes? Um, I was under the impression, and I have a lot of things wrong, that a lot of the churches that believe in that Jesus is coming back was taught by a Jesuit priest a long time ago. Is that correct? That is correct, because here's the problem. The Reformed Church was saying Babylon in, in Revelation, that's the Roman Catholic Church. So this Jesuit priest is studying the book of Revelation, and he comes across the common sense idea, well, no, Babylon, or the great city, is where the Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. Why are these Reformed guys saying that we're Babylon when it's Old Covenant Jerusalem? So he, so I guess the first, well, he, I wouldn't say he's the first preterist. Uh, actually, it goes back to Jeff written, has written a great article, and he gave a, a great lecture on preterism seen in the church fathers. I would recommend that to you. Um, because we see preterism way before we see this Jesuit priest guy come on the scene. But that's how that started. And so these anti-preterists go, oh, you guys are just Catholics. And they think, well, there. You're Hymenaeus, you're Philetus, and you're a Jesuit priest. There. Just debate over. That's, that's crazy. None of that even makes any sense. All right, good. All right. The whole problem for all of it comes from a rejection of the inspiration of Scripture. Ultimately, Gary DeMar says this. R.C. Sproul says this. And when they're dealing with dispensationalists and all-millennials, they say, you guys are this close to denying the inspiration of Scripture. And Sproul calls them out. You're, you're dealing with the time text in a neo-orthodoxy way. And that's no way to interpret the Scripture. 